Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Mark, chapter 4. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. I think Bibles are in the back, Sam, if you don't mind grabbing those. And if anyone needs a Bible, uh, let's get them the text. Got one down here at least. All right. Fourth chapter of Mark, we're in the last passage of the fourth chapter, if you can believe it. So we're going to move to chapter 5 next week. Um, But there's a very important historical story right here at the end of the chapter. You want right here? Great. So chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 35. That's where we left off last week. By the way, last week I had the flu. Sorry I wasn't here. Uh, Timing was incredible because we just moved into a new home this past week. And the day of our closing, I woke up with a fever and had the flu. And so it was, it was rough. Many of you and some that aren't here helped us move in uh, and indebted to you forever. I will move you to your next home no matter what. We've got several IOUs out there. Um, but Scott Kendig was here. That's the executive director for the Grace Churches. And so thanks for welcoming him. But let's get back into the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick up in verse 35. Reads this. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Verse 40, And Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea Obey him. That's our passage this morning. There's two questions that the text asks of the reader. And they go like this. Number one, who is Jesus? See right there at the end. Who is this man? So number one, the text asks, who is Jesus? And number two, it asks, will you trust him? Who is he? And will you trust him? Trust him when? When the storms come. When the storms of your life come, will you trust him? Do you think the disciples knew that when they got in the boat that night, it says that they had a long day of ministry. Chapter 4 is one whole day of ministry. They get to the end of it. They're exhausted. It's starting to get dark. Jesus says, let's make camp over there on the other side of the sea. Do you think they knew before they they got in that boat that night, That they'd be hanging on for dear life in the middle of a storm. Of course they didn't know that. What are the crises that have happened in your life? What are the days that just, they they, they just spun out of control? You got that phone call or this thing happened at work. You didn't know when you walked out of the threshold of your front door that the day would go like that. That that storm would suddenly come as it did for them on the Sea of Galilee. You didn't know that. And neither did the disciples. They had no clue. None of us know when the storms of crisis will come our way. We usually don't get an alert on our phone. 
They just come suddenly. And here's what I know. It's a lot easier to trust Jesus on the dry land, isn't it? It's a lot easier to play it safe on the dry land and go out in the open sea of the future to what he's calling you to. But here's what's true in Scripture and in everyone's life in here. It's in the storm where real faith grows. Not on the dry land. Everyone in here can preach this sermon today. It's not on the dry land. It's not in good weather. It's in bad weather. Is where your faith really grows. Because here's how it works. Life storms plunge you into the Christian faith. They plunge you into it. Suffering plunges you into the Christian faith. And either these things are real and sturdy so that I can cling to them in the midst of the wind or they're not. Storm is what takes faith from theory to life reality. Because you have to cling to the pillars of the faith and hold on in the wind. Either sturdy and real, or they're faulty and they are not true. That's how storms work. We could go around this room right now. We could get a long list of life storms, different things that have happened. Reality is, they have come our way, and they'll continue to come our way. That's how life works in a broken world. What today's passage is about is what to do in the midst of them. How to react and respond when all of a sudden you're in a boat in the middle of the night and a storm comes over the Jordan Rift of all the mountains that are around there and suddenly you find yourself in crisis. What do you do then? That's what this passage is all about. Some of the earliest art that came out of the, out of the early church was artwork where it was this passage. It's where the church was in the boat and Jesus was with them. And they were going through the storms of persecution by the Roman Empire and the different individual crises that came their way. This passage has meant so much to the church for millennia upon millennia because it's so incredibly relatable. It's about what to do in the midst of of the storm. Let's go deeper into it. We'll take it verse by verse. Verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him as well. So see the scene. This is a real historical account, a day in the life of Jesus. It's been a long, exhausting day of teaching for Jesus. That's what he's been doing. He's been teaching and teaching and teaching. It's kind of like uh, the last session of an over-caffeinated conference. You ever been to one of those? It's like by the last session, you've, you've caffeinated yourself so much that you're barely human. You're just jittering, hanging on. I can't stand conferences, by the way. I love them for the first half, and then I'm just done by the second. I'm finding every excuse to go get hot wings and check out a movie or uh, just, I, I, I can't stay there too long. Hot wings, yeah. Because it tastes better at conferences. 
End of the, end of the day. End of the long conference. They're done. They got nothing left. They're tired. This is why Jesus slept so hard in the boat. Because he had a long day of teaching. 100% human, 100% divine. He was exhausted. Right? It says in verse 35 that evening had come. On that day when evening had come. So the sky is starting to get dark. You know when you're outside doing some kind of family thing or something with friends? And all of a sudden, especially now with the time change, it starts to get dark, right? You've got to figure out, okay, how much more time do we have? It's time to go. I'm starting to see the sky change colors. That's the scene here. Jesus makes the call for the team to go across the other side of the lake to get some rest from all the crowds and all the demands. And remember, the beginning of this long day is the opening passage of the chapter. Flip back to verse 1. That's the morning. That's when this whole chapter is one day. Verse 1, it says, Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. So Jesus, during the morning, is so crowded, he says, I'm going to be crushed by the crowd. He sits on the boat, right? And he's teaching parable after parable after parable. That's literally what the day last, I don't know, three, four weeks of study. Okay? It's getting dark. He says, he's looking around. What are we going to do? Let's go to the other side. We need some rest. Let's go to make a camp there. It says, that, it says in verse 35, they took him, or 36, they took him as he was. I'm sorry, see the book. It's not hard to read scripture. You just got to think it through. You let the scene build in your mind. Okay? Yeah, verse 36. Go back to verse 36. It says, they took Jesus in the boat just as he was sitting right there. So off in the dark to the other side to make camp is what's happening. Look what happens in verse 37. <coughs> and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Some translations use the word swamped. Some talk about taking on water, right? That's what's happening. Out of nowhere, a sudden storm, and water is coming in, and there's lightning and thunder, and you're probably, they're probably right out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. How many of you have ever seen the Sea of Galilee? Just raise your hand. Okay. There we go. Awesome. It's beautiful out there. To me, it looks like Colorado in the summer. Okay. Middle of the night, sudden storm comes. Now, these sudden storms are common on the Sea of Galilee. Because of the geography, where it's located. The lake is located in the Jordan Rift. It's got steep hills, kind of small mountains on all sides. And that makes it very susceptible to sudden, sudden storms. The cooler air from the hills can rush down and collide with the warm air that's on the lake's basin. And it can create these sudden, violent storms. Okay. So that's the situation. One of the things I've always thought, though, in the back of my mind when I've read this historical account is this. Couldn't they swim? Couldn't they swim? It's not an ocean. There's no sharks in there. It's a lake. Couldn't they swim? There could be some predators in there, but couldn't they swim? That's what I've always thought. I mean, sure, they could capsize and be in the very middle of the sea and under all kinds of violent weather and potentially not make it to shore. I mean, that's certainly possible, even if you're a great swimmer. So I had to do some digging. 
And I went to a scholar uh, who's helpful here. Mark Strauss is his name. I think we have it on the screen. And this is what I found out. In a culture where swimming was not a recreational activity, sinking in rough seas in the middle of the lake would likely result in loss of life. So they weren't a recreational swimming kind of culture. Right? Think of Peter. So later in chapter 14, verse 30, when Peter is walking on the water with Jesus, and he's slipping and falling into the water, and he freaks out as though he's going to die. Lord, save me, is what he says. Right? Couldn't he swim? He just doesn't want to get wet? Like, what's the deal? No, it wasn't a recreational activity. They would probably act like they could be okay, but they couldn't really swim. Only short distances. So in the end of the Gospel of John, when Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore, it talks about how it's only 100 feet from shore. They're not great swimmers. What about the boat? I've wondered that. How big is it? How big is the boat? How big is the boat? What are we looking at here? Can they swim? And how big is the boat? So I did some more digging. Because, uh, you know, what size are we talking about here that life-threatening water can, can just capsize the thing? And it's really not that big. Another quote from Strauss. It says, no indication is given here of the size of the boat, but the discovery in 1986 of a remarkably well-preserved first-century fishing boat, it's exactly what they would have used, near Kibbutz Gainasar, provides a likely model. The boat, measured 27 feet long and 7.5 feet wide, was made of cedar planks and an oak frame and could hold about 15 people. Jesus and the Twelve could have fit in such a boat. So that's what we're looking at. So get the scene. These exhausted young men are traveling in the dark. There's no, you know, maybe a torch, but that's about it. Across the sea, and a sudden violent storm is swamping their little 15-person boat. They don't swim that well, and they're terrified that they might die. You can imagine Peter, James, John, follow me, pick one. In the middle of this moment, terrified that they're not going to make it out. Having the thought, at least I would, like this? This is how I'm going to go? Out here I'm going to drown? Because of this sudden storm? Because Jesus said to go to the other side and now we're, we're all going to die? They're terrified in this moment. Like, rightly so. What about Jesus? What's he up to? How's he feeling? Verse 38. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Right? And it says, and they, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They had to go wake him up. And they said, do you not care? Do you not care that we're about to die? Why do you not care, Jesus? Wake up. Do something. The heart of their question is this. Do you not care, God? Now here's what we have to understand. These aren't just the disciples' words. These are our words. Are they not? Aren't these often the words that come out of your mouth or at least out of your mind to God when you're in crisis? We feel as though God is asleep. God is indifferent to my suffering. God doesn't care about this storm that I'm in. Someone needs to wake him up. He doesn't see what's happening. 
He doesn't see that I'm about to die on the inside. Again, we could go around the room and list the storms. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have been through serious financial crisis. Some of you have been betrayed and lied about. Some of you are in the eye of a storm right now. Smaller, big. But I know I've felt that way. Or I've cried out to God in the midst of the storm. Feeling as though God was asleep to the situation. Or just not even there in the boat. So here in the text, the disciples, what they do with the question, do you not care that we're perishing? It's both an accusation of Jesus and it's a rebuke of Jesus. Do you not care? So what does Jesus do? What's his reaction to their accusation? And just imagine Jesus is asleep all of a sudden, you know, probably Peter, because Peter was just loud mouth and impulsive. He's probably going like, he's shaking him, right? And Jesus opens his eyes and there's drops of rain coming in. He's trying to get his bearings and he's in his face accusing him. Do you not care? Right? And he has to get up and figure out the situation. He stands up in the boat, 15-person boat, crazy weather all around them. And then verse 39 happens. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Put yourself in the scene. Visualize what just took place there. You'd be floored at your friend and teacher. Floored at what just happened. All of a sudden, pouring down rain, waves, you're moving around like this, it's all coming in, and all of a sudden, he speaks a word to the sea, it says. He talks to nature, and this is a great calm came over the sea. He literally spoke to the wind, and they immediately listened to him. Here's what I'd be thinking. He can speak to nature? He can control the weather? And then this is what would happen to me and it's what happened to them. A fear would come over you and you'd wonder this one thing to yourself. Who is this man? Who is this man? Look at verse 41. It says they were filled with great fear. That's greater fear than the fear they had about the, about the waves. That's greater. It says great fear, not just fear. Great fear. They're now in even more of a trembling state. And said to one another, who then is this that even the, the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is demonstrating his authority now, even over weather, over all of nature, right? You can think of what's happened already in Mark up 
to this point in, in, in the gospel. The, the disciples must have thought to themselves, I've seen him have authority over disease and, and, and demons, but now even the weather obeys him. And, and, and what you have to understand is that these young Jewish disciples, they, they would have understood this really clearly. They were well trained in the scriptures. Is this reality? The Old Testament describes God as the Lord of creation who speaks and the seas obey. So two examples. Psalm 104, verse 7. It says, At your rebuke, the waters fled. It's talking about God, Yahweh. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Psalms 89, verse 9. You rule God over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. And so get what's happening. These wet, frightened disciples knew their Bible well enough to know that only God commands the winds and the waves, and they listen. Yet Jesus, our rabbi and friend, just spoke to the winds and the waves, just spoke to nature, and they listened to him. Verse 41, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Here's the question they're they're thinking. Who is this man? Answer according to Old Testament scripture. He in the boat is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's God. God, that's who's in their boat. I'll cross any sea with God. That's who's in their boat. And friends, I have good news, gospel news this morning. That's who's in yours. Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, is in your life's boat. You see, the Bible goes to great lengths to communicate this all-important truth over and over, this gospel truth that is gloriously amazing for us. And it is the doctrine of your union with Christ. That's what it's called in Scripture. It's the doctrine of your union tethered to Christ. It's the truth that you are united to him forever. He's in your boat. When you're born again by regeneration, at confession of faith in Jesus, something dramatic changes in your existence. Read about it. Romans 6 is a great place to go, but it's all over the New Testament. Something dramatic changes about who you are. You are now forever, ontologically, existentially, and spiritually united to Christ. He is forever, no matter the storm, in your boat, period. That truth brings a whole level of deep and profound comfort to me for the next crisis. He's with me. There is nothing that I've ever nor will ever suffer where Christ is not right 
there in it with me. The Lord of heaven and earth in my boat. According to scripture, it's virtually impossible for a Christian to suffer alone. Take that to the bank. It's virtually impossible because of your union with Christ to ever suffer alone. You suffer alongside and in union to the Lord of heaven and earth. We need to meditate on that. We need to let that in. Then it becomes the whole new consciousness through which I look out on the world and look out on the storms that come. I want to show you three examples in Scripture that build on each other, highlighting this truth of your union with Christ. And it's really good because there's a lot of things that could happen out there. And to know that I'm united to the Lord of heaven and earth, that just changes the way I suffer. Help us meditate on that, Lord. John 10. Jesus makes a promise. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. He's talking about perishing out of existence as a whole, not just in this reality, but in the age to come. Okay. He says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So get the imagery there. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And he says, I and the father are one. So the imagery is literally clutched by the all-loving hands of the creator of the universe. And no one says nothing, no storm, no betrayal, no tragedy can snatch you out of God's sovereign, close, tender, mother hand-like care. Why? Because you're united to Christ. John 14 is going to get a little deeper on you. It's really going to talk about that ontological change of being that you have when you're regenerate and born again. 2 Corinthians 5, you're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You're a, you're, you're a new creature in Christ is the truth. Why? Because you're united to Christ, not just on your own. John 14, Jesus speaking to the disciples, it's to the disciples and all the disciples after them. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. How's that, how's that going to work, Jesus? Because I live, you also will live. In that day, Jesus says, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. You know those little, I think they're Russian dolls or something, those little cups where you keep opening them and they get smaller and smaller and smaller? Does anyone know what this? Okay. That's like weird kid. That's That's the imagery I see there. It says, I'm in the Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. There's this deep tethering of being. There's this union with Christ that puts me in union with God the Father. 
He goes on, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, Father, Son, Spirit, will come to him and make our home with him. I sure would love to be a rental home for the creator of the universe. I sure would love for God to make his home with me. Union with Christ. Last one. Romans 8, and there are, the New Testament is littered with these. Romans 8 says this, For I am sure, think about storms, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Union word, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Doesn't matter the storm, doesn't matter how big the wind or the waves are. I literally, existentially cannot be separated. Because I'm more spiritual than the guy next to me? No, it has nothing to do with how spiritual I am. It has everything to do with who I am in. It says, I'm in Christ Jesus. Union is everything in the Christian faith. If I'm in union with him, then all of these truths are true in my life. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Every spiritual blessing is mine in the heavenly places in, in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of blessings. Why? Because I'm united to him. I want us to love this doctrine. I want us to love this truth. It is such a gospel-centered reality. What does all that mean in today's context? It means this. Jesus is in your boat. Jesus is in every storm with you. If you are a Christ, united Christian, you've never gone through a storm without him, nor will you ever. I want to get to the kind of practice where I'm going through a storm, some kind of season of suffering, and I just meditate over and over. Christ is with me. Christ is with me. Christ is in me. Christ is in me. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. And let my faith expand and bring me into the reality of my situation. It's an illusion to think you're suffering all alone. That's an illusion. You're being deceived. That's what the enemy wants, to isolate you. And to try and convince you that the doctrine of union with Christ isn't real. But guess what? It is, because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on God Almighty. You're forever united to Him. You never suffer alone. And so I just want to meditate over and over and let that faith expand in my experience to be in reality, not over in some delusion of suffering all by my what does Jesus say to them after the storm is gone it's a quiet night sea now he says verse 40 Jesus said to them why are you so afraid have you still no faith you see they tried to accuse and rebuke Jesus but Jesus rebukes the sea and then he rebukes them why are you so afraid? 
Have you still no faith? Look closely at what he asks. There's fear and faith involved. Why are you so afraid? First question. Second question. Have you still no faith? Why are you filled with fear and empty of faith? Jesus is referring back to everything we've already studied. The healings, the exorcisms. They'd already seen all of that. They had a front row seat to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through this one man. And Jesus says to them, do you not yet have faith? You see, in the mind of Christ, there is a biblical principle at play. And the development of these disciples and all of us disciples. And it's just a phrase. It goes like this. Past faithfulness builds future faith. Past faithfulness builds future faith. Where we've seen God come through in sovereign care for us in the past, in a thousand different ways, where we've seen God intervene. They're like these bricks that over the years slowly build upon brick, upon brick, upon brick, past faithfulness, and it builds brick upon brick into a fortress of faith in our lives. You see? At the time, six years ago, when God came through financially, it was a dead end. I didn't think I didn't know what to know where to turn on. He was praying. At the time in my career, when I saw God coming through, at the time when I saw God rescue my child from that thing, at the time when I saw this, that we, 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 could, we could list storms and we could list times God has cared for us. Those times when we see past faithfulness bricks that start to stack up and build around us a fortress of new faith. So that when the next storm comes, you're building this impenetrable fortress of faith so that you don't despair and fear, but you have the faith to push forward in Him. Past faithfulness builds future faith. And notice the two things Jesus makes it about in his question. He makes it about fear and faith. They were filled with fear, therefore they were empty on faith. It's one or the other. The opposite is true. You're filled with faith and your fear meter is way down here. They're never parallel. It's one or the other, typically. Fear and faith. Jesus is constantly in the business of building brick by brick your fortress of faith. Where have you seen God sovereignly care for you? Where have you seen Him intervene? You need to name that because that's a brick of faith that you can build on. And faith is everything in the Scriptures. It works in two primary ways. Defensively and offensively. That's how faith works primarily in the Bible. Defensively and offensively. Defensively like that fortress of faith that protect you against the storms of life and the schemes of the enemy. And then offensively, it's the bricks through which you build the future that God's called you to live. Faith is everything. Defensive and offensive. One example defensively, Ephesians 6. It says, Stand therefore, as his armor of God, having fastened on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What's a shield? Is it an offensive weapon? No, not typically. It's defensive. You can shield the darts of the evil one, the lies that come your way in the storm. God, I think it's defensive. It's also offensive. It doesn't just build the fortress of protection. It's the bricks upon which you build the future road into what God's called you to. Let me give you an offensive passage. Hebrews 11. The great Hebrews 11 talking about heroes of the faith. Look what it says. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. So they did something. Not just defensive. They did something. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the wall of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What more shall I say? For time would fail me, the author says, to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, of David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Faith as a defensive in storms to keep you from despair, faith as an offensive in good weather to advance you in life. Let me bring this home and ask this question. What are the God-given ambitions of your life? I said God-given. What are the God-given ambitions of your life? List them out. To raise godly children. And I want Shay, Jack, and Judd to walk with God, period. Pray it every night. To be successful in your profession. Great. To have a legacy of personal ministry behind you in your wake of your life as you go into your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. 60s and beyond, there's men and women who have discipled and impacted for the kingdom. Here's what the Bible would tell you. All and every single God-given ambition will take one thing according to Scripture. Faith. And Christ, here's the good news, is in your boat building past faithfulness into the future of faith that you need. And so take inventory. What does your fortress of faith look like right now? How high are the bricks? Are you naming past faithfulness as a brick? Are you unaware? Are you ignorant? In the Old Testament, how many times did they have to build monuments, Ebenezer's, of when God intervened and sovereignly cared? They were constantly having to build those. Because it's easy to have spiritual amnesia. And so we've got to name the bricks of faithfulness to build up that house of faith. Christ wants to build it higher. He's committed to building it higher. So that you, as you grow in your faith over the decades, become this impenetrable fortress of faith for your family. That's my vision for everyone here and for us as a church. You need to be a house of faith for your children. A house of faith for your friends. A house of faith for your loved ones. You can weather the storm. And you can build the life that God's called you to because of faith. And that's his work, not yours. His past faithfulness becomes a brick for your future faith 
It's a work of grace. So I want to end in a personal way. Some in the room are in relatively good weather right now, and others are in a storm. Could be big or small. If you're in a storm right now, I want you to bring that to mind. What's happening? What's going on? If you're in good weather, I want you to bring to mind that one God-given ambition that you're going after right now. That one thing that you really want to see happen that you believe is from the Lord. It could be in work or family life, any, any sector of life. But it's that one God-given ambition that you're focused on right now. And I want to take us into a time of prayer. So let's close our eyes together. We're going to call on the Lord with those two things in mind. If you're in a storm, have that. If you've got an ambition, have that. I want you to speak directly to Jesus right now. Tell him which one it is. Speak directly. Speak to him about the storm you're in. Just name it to him. Or speak to him about that one ambition you have. Speak to him candidly because you're united to him. He is listening. The Lord of heaven and earth is listening to you. He's in your boat. After you've confessed that one thing, I want you to ask him to bring to mind past times of his faithfulness. Right now, just let the Lord bring to mind, just bullet point them, past times of his faithfulness. Memories of God caring for you. Let them just stack up in your mind right now like bricks. directly to build up your faith. Say, Lord Jesus, please build up my faith. God-given faith in him is the single thing you need for what he's called you to. Ask him to build up your faith. Lord Jesus, build up my house of faith. Build a fortress around me for my family and for my ministry and for my profession. Remember who's there. Remember who's with you. Recognize Jesus again as the Lord of heaven and earth. Ask him to build our faith in you, Lord. Confess to him, I want a life of faith and not a life of fear. That's our request, Lord. We ask that you do it only you can do it. Build up together. Take all these bricks. It says in first Peter, all these living stones, God, and they build up a church of great faith. Athens. God, build up a fortress of faith here that many can run to the center and center for the kingdom. Yes. That many can come and find you and be liberated in the gospel. God, may this be a house of faith that many can run to for healing and forgiveness, for salvation. That they might live for something far bigger than themselves for the kingdom. God, we ask for it by great life. Yes, this is in Jesus' name.